This is an ABC podcast. This is Baby Talk Podcast with Penny Johnston. Do you remember the smash hit film Lion? It was the story of a little Indian boy who was lost on a train, separated from his family, to be eventually adopted here in Australia. Let's uh, start with where you're from. Calcutta. Which part? I'm adopted, I'm not really Indian. Saru, how beautiful boy. You are very proud of yourself. A life I'd forgotten. another family, a mother, a brother. I can still see their faces. What happened? I have to find my way back home. How long were you on the train? A couple of days. A couple of days. It would take a lifetime to search all the stations in India. I always thought that I could keep this family together. I need you, Saru. What if you do find home and they're not even there? Every night I imagine that I'm walking those streets home and I know every single step of the way. Saru Briley's search for his home in rural India with the help of Google Earth became an internationally best-selling book and inspired the motion picture Lion. But the story of how his adoptive mother Sue came into his life half a world away in Tasmania is every bit as riveting. Sue has written her own story in a book called Lioness. Lioness is the story of adoption, inter-country adoption, which for a while has fallen out of favour here in Australia. In fact, you could even say that adoption by far is the most difficult way to become a parent in our country. Adoption in Australia has a very chequered history of extreme trauma, just the most horrible social practices And it has changed quite consistently with each decade. And that's because of the way adoption programs are facilitated. Primarily at that time, it was a government-based organisational system, but it was also linked in with a religious service as well, run, run by the Catholic Church. But Sue Briley, from the age of 12, always knew she wanted to become a mother by adoption rather than biology. And it is her stoicism and love and belief that in part makes the story and the film such a success. And I suspect that this is the case in real life too. Lioness is a fascinating story to read. And Sue, I'm so pleased to be able to speak to you on Baby Talk. I wonder if you could tell us the story of how you always knew that you wanted to become a mum by adoption? Well, it's a a long journey and it's a long story and I've written this quite fat book about it. But basically it began when I was a young girl and out of the blue and quite strangely, at a very dark moment in my life, I had a vision that gave me some comfort to face my future and it awakened in me a possibility of a life that could be of my very own choosing. So that's basically what I decided around the age of 12 and a lot of things have been happening in my day-to-day life. So I just really took this as a sign that, hey, hang in there, it's going to be okay 
your life has a purpose. People that are thinking that you're just a 12-year-old making this statement, this brave statement, you were living in very extremely difficult circumstances. Yes, but the thing was for most of that, probably for the first eight years, I wasn't aware of how abnormal my life and family situation was. So I think that helped in a way. You know, it's like sometimes I think back about the parallel of Saru's first five years of life and how he came forward from that. And yet it was so harsh and difficult and in fact more difficult than my beginnings. Because of the unknowing of the situation, I I didn't have the maturity to understand how absolutely horrific it was. And that became aware and into my life as knowledge, probably from the age of 10 on. And I'm thinking, hey, this isn't good. This isn't what I want. And then with each year and I just came to the decision, hey, this is not for me. Because just to give people a little bit of background, your parents were both refugees from the Second World War, really thrown together, living in Tasmania, which can be a really harsh environment, but your father was pretty keen to keep your mum and your sisters very much under his control. Yes, it was really, domination was a big thing. It was a style of his being a husband and a parent and it was about domination and self-gratification basically very ego driven very you know there's so many words very grandiose very unable to see the power that he had was being so misused a a lot of people would sort of identify probably with some aspects of that and you know it was an era when the adults were always right and there was there was very little recourse for children like yourself that were in such a, a difficult situation but it's amazing that it gave you the strength to be a completely different parent well i certainly had an example of the parent i didn't want to be so that was a great start because i just had a default of no, not doing it that way. And that keeps everything rather simple because you just know, hey, I'm not doing it that way. I also realised that by wanting to parent children from overseas and with difficult circumstances behind them, that I would have to really prepare myself very well. So I feel I made my best effort in that regard by reading. I was a keen observer of families. When I did come into a family situation that I admired, I thought about it in great depth about how I could replicate that skill. It wasn't a thing that I just happened to be a parent. I really feel I made a lot of effort to become a good parent. How did you first consider overseas adoption? I mean, was Australian adoption something that you were looking into? Australian adoption at that time really was not happening. And adoption in Australia has a very chequered history of extreme trauma, 
just the most horrible social practices and it has changed quite consistently with each decade and that's because of the way adoption programs are facilitated within our country and it's done on a state-by-state basis. So every state has their way of handling adoption services. Primarily at that time it was a government-based organisational system but it was also linked in with a religious service as well run, run by the Catholic Church and other churches prior to that but at the time we were looking to do it that was the situation then. But Primarily for us, the problem was that these services were only available to infertile couples. It was just, you couldn't even apply. So that was our first major stumbling block. But once we waited and waited and it became possible that the adoption lists and services were open to people who wished to adopt for other reasons, we applied and quite quickly Saru arrived into our family. Wow, because we're talking about the the 80s, there was quite a bit of inter-country adoption. You, yes. you had a, a big support network behind you of other couples doing the same thing. That's right, because at that time we developed as a society respect for the situation of um, women who wish to keep their children and parent alone We'd moved on from the forced removal of children. And also we became aware of the need of thousands of children overseas. So it was quite an enlightened period of time and adoption was functioning super well. There were parent groups that got together. We had a great reputation overseas from the sending countries and things were going really well. And a lot of children were coming to families in Australia from overseas. Then we moved on from that back into the dark times where our reputation overseas became a bit sullied. The social services sort of slipped back into, oh, we don't really want to do this. This isn't a good thing. This is, you know, we're going to use a tag to stop doing this. We're going to really stymie the process and I feel at a bureaucratic level that happened in most states of Australia. What do you think happened? I mean what what was the response from overseas and what had we done internally? Was it that families were experiencing or that the adoptive children were experiencing difficulties with life in Australia or that feeling that countries should keep their own children to look after? There were a lot of factors involved there. There were the services that adopted this philosophy of we're making children into a commodity. There is a risk of malpractice. There are a lot of things but coming into that mix which then got picked up in the sending countries because we're saying, oh, we don't believe those children are free for adoption. We believe there's trafficking happening. And I don't deny that there poss- possibly was a very small amount of this going on. Mm. There were a few examples of uh, children that did in fact get stolen from their families and ended up being adopted over the world. And that was an absolute tragic situation. But in the end, the response was, let's throw the baby out with the (laughs) bathwater. Literally. 
And that's what happened over time because we got so antsy about a few issues that these very departments hadn't managed correctly, failing. So let's just stop the whole program. And I'm very sad about that because I know that there were desperate children waiting to come to good families and that would have been fabulous families and given these children a real chance at life. Now, it's easy to assume that once a baby or little child arrives, they've got parents that are so willing and, and wanting to give them every opportunity that a, a fantastic Australian childhood could offer. But as, as we saw with your story, it, it wasn't always easy. And even though, to my mind, you were as prepared as you could possibly be, in your diary entries, you talk about Saru sliding backwards or his defiance and your way of dealing with it, your understanding that this is something that ad- adopted children or children who've been through trauma had gone through. How hard was it dealing with all those unexpected psychological issues? Well, for me, you know, there's a saying, it takes a village to raise a child. And for us, we had an amazing support group of people who had also adopted from overseas. So we had just a fabulous support at that time. So that got you through. And also I was constantly re-educating myself with what information I could find regarding this. So I sort of tried to feel that I was, you know, covering all bases using every available um, amount of knowledge or wherever I could find it from to help in this situation. But I hope also that in my book, I talk about the fact that in all families, there are difficulties with some children. And we have this problem. It's large now in families in Australia, that there's children in families that somehow just fail to thrive and go the wrong way and give their parents a lot of grief. And then their parents in turn might be not quite up to the mark to handle some of these issues or just totally incapable of it. There's a lot of shame involved. As I talk about when our second child arrives, how, you know, virtually we just hunkered down and went into hide mode to try and push through this difficult time. That's happening in families in Australia, no matter how they are created. Absolutely. And the fact that you volunteer for that is just so admirable and the the way that you approach it. Because your second son, and I didn't realise it was because of almost a, a bureaucratic Bungle. He was taken from a, a safe orphanage by the courts and put into a notoriously yes. awful place in the months before you received him. And, and do you blame that for a lot of the damage done to him? Definitely. That is at the hands of the adults that had his future in their very hands. And I am angry about it. I have very ill feelings towards those people who made those decisions, but I'm also mindful that that is still happening today, that decisions are being made that aren't in the best interests of the child, which is that phrase that gets parroted around through all sorts of levels of child services. 
and I feel is overly used as a cop-out. It really is. Yes, and you even had run-ins with our own bureaucracy in Australia with caring for that second son of yours. Yes. Well, again, same, same scenario. The part that was damaging really for me and for my second son most was the deteriorating relationship between Australia and India and our connection there with our agreement adoption. So it gets very complicated and I've got to watch what I say because, you know, we're living in a world of political correctness. And But anyway, I've dealt with that in my book as best I can and it's, it has the tick of approval from a lawyer but you know still at the end of the day there were people in Australia and in India that did the wrong thing in my view. Yours is a beautiful story of perseverance and I just so commend you on your journey to parenthood but the reason that most of us are knowing about your story and reading your book is because of course the story was made into a movie that starred a lot of famous people uh, it was a beautiful story but also so tragic I mean there really were moments of just heart-wrenching it was it was very difficult and just I became very aware of that when Saru and I toured around for opening nights and we spoke to people before the screening of the film and everyone's sort of quite apprehensive, a little bit worried. Uh, you know, you could feel the, the tension there. So we'd, you know, leave the room and come back just towards the end of the film for the last 15 minutes. And, you know, uh, I became quite aware of the absolute trauma that this had brought up with a lot of people. People were quietly crying. You know, I could sense it in the rooms, even though they were dark. And people went to a place that they really hadn't been to before. And I was particularly touched by the men who were so overcome. They had gone so deep to a place where, you know, men keep a lot of stuff hidden. And I really felt for them. It was so heart-wrenching to see them so overcome with this story. But also I was happy because I feel it was a positive thing to let that emotion come out adoption touches so many people everybody knows someone in the family or another close family that's been adopted they're aware of the searching and the longing but you know I also take a bit of hope that in the future our society will re-embrace adoption in purity and for all the best because in a way I dedicate a lot of my words to the thousands of children who are just hanging around in endless foster care that really want a proper family. I dedicate a lot of my thoughts to them. I think of them every day. Mm. But that, that's, the, that's our society now. That's the direction, the best interests of the child. I think that one taking of... Us in. Yeah, I think that one of the things about becoming a parent and even as a journalist, I would have conducted this interview with you in a very different way. Had I not had a child, I think that becoming a mother and whichever way you do, you you suddenly have this this heart for children and being mistreated. It it suddenly becomes personal, a, a, a physical pain. Because that's the reason for that is that because when you're a mother, 
you're thinking of other mothers, your sisters in need and their children in need. So we mothers are part of a great sisterhood and I never forget that either. That is a thing that's also close to my heart and that's why I feel for all the thousands of women across the world who can't even have a roof over their head, their homes are destroyed by war or whatever, they're abandoned and they're there with their children in need and I feel for those sisters. It's just so tragic. Now, one of the amazing things about your adoption story is that you eventually did find Saru's mother and I I just wonder how that affected you. Well of course that was just one of the highlights of my life it was one of the most precious experiences I've ever had and it felt so right you know I wasn't going there to lord it over her as a rich woman that enjoyed her son I was going there to connect with her in the most humble way and just to get an understanding of how she felt now that she had relief in knowing that her son was okay. Because keeping in mind on that night she lost two sons and her other son died and I just can't begin to say that I could possibly imagine what that would have felt like for her but she truly was in my view a very regal woman that has had a bad set of circumstances thrust upon her in a culture that really doesn't embrace and support and respect women as much as it should at times so that's that's the origins of my sister in motherhood Fatima Mm. and she's a special woman. Yes I mean that is something that that does come across in the book. The other mother that you did connect with who again not necessarily in a welcome way has had a lot of attention on her motherhood journey is Nicole Kidman so was it fun having her play you on the big screen? Yes well she was my first choice and when she saw the role and accepted it I was so happy. I felt also that it was perfect, you know, that because of being an adoptive mother as well. And then plus, I've always seen her as first and foremost, a mother and a woman and a sister. I see her as an actress second, because that's her profession. And she's an amazing actress. So I felt I was in really good hands with her skills. I couldn't have wished for anyone better and she went to a lot of effort to connect with me, hear my words and I'm very happy and grateful that she made that effort. She was perfect for the role. Although I think, I'm sure that you had better hairstyles than the the wig they gave her. We had a little joke and she said to me, why do I have to look so mumsy? And I said, I don't know, I never did. Just, it's part of the dramatisation of the story and the image had to be portrayed as someone who was desperate, down and out and a bit daggy. Sorry about that. (laughs) I was too. (laughs) (laughs) But that said, once you heard her words and saw her emotion on her face, you could forget about the terrible wig and the white cardian, you know, it's sort of... (laughs) 
Did you have a connection because she has two families, one from adoption? No, because we truly believe we are just mums. We are mothers like any other. How we come to that is a different journey. But once we're there, we are mothers first and foremost. And so that was us. We talked about so many things. We actually had quite a lot of thoughts in common. And she's a very caring person. And and particularly on things like red carpet events, you know, she'd have a couple of words, you know, walk this way, do this, do that. And that really helped me a lot because I was like a fish out of water. You know, I just had no clue. But she was very kind in supporting me that. So when we were side by side appearing publicly, she had my back and she had the experience to take me through with grace. And just looking back at some of those things on footage, etc., I think I held my own pretty well. Do you have any words of encouragement for families that would like to still try and pursue adoption as difficult as it is these days? I say if it's truly what your heart tells you to do, you have to keep going. You can't give up. If you've set your heart on a path, you have to keep going. And like I did it many times, you have to get noisy. You have to lobby. You have to knock on politicians' doors. You have to make your voice heard because otherwise you will fail and that might be a thing you would regret in the future. Fingers crossed and I hope it inspires a different kind of thinking for people who take the time to read it. Sue Briley and Lioness. Lioness is out in bookstores and is an amazing read. And I guess if adoption is the way that you wish to become a parent, It is such a difficult path to walk, but mothers like Sue Briley are wishing you all the very best. You're listening to Baby Talk. I'm Penny Johnston, and every week we produce a podcast about one of the aspects of being a parent. Last week we showcased the amazing work done by the team at Panda. Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia. They run an amazing helpline which is available to anyone that might need help with their mental health before, during or after pregnancy. Well, I think if you had asked me prior to COVID, we would have said that it was generally mums who were calling us after they had had their babies. But COVID's thrown that all up in the air. As a result of COVID, that's really shifted. Now 18% of our callers are people who have a baby under one month of age. So they're very new parents. They're people who haven't had the luxury, as some would say, of experiencing the hospital-based care over the period of time as a result of COVID. So they're people who haven't developed that confidence in their parenting skills. That interview is available on the Baby Talk podcast page. You can find us online just by searching Baby Talk and the podcast is on iTunes and on the ABC Listen app. If you know somebody who's a new parent that doesn't know about Baby Talk, you can easily share the podcast if you're listening on your computer just by tapping the share button and it lets you send the link as an email or a text to your friend. I'm Penny Johnston. I'll see you next time on Baby Talk. 
ABC Baby Talk is a weekly podcast on ABC Digital Radio, wherever you get your podcasts and on the ABC Listen app. Like us on Facebook to find out as soon as a new episode is ready. Just search for ABC Baby Talk. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.